Welcome everyone, my name is Patricia Rozvora and I'm the host of Kitchen Conversations, a platform to speak about contemporary art from so-called Eastern Europe. In each episode, you're going to be introduced to one artist, sometimes also a collective, whose visual or activist practice sheds light onto the complex former socialist region, with all its histories, cultures, languages, foods, but also traumas and their inevitable contemporary consequences. The podcast is a fully independent platform existing since May 2020. If you enjoy the monthly conversations, you can support me via Patreon or share the episodes with your friends or via social channels. Welcome back, dear listeners. I'm happy to have you back. Finally, we also got some spring weather in Europe. For most of us, it also means allergy season, so I hope I can record this intro without sneezing. <laughs> anyway, my today's guest, Karolina Grzewnowicz, uh, is a Polish artist who is currently uh, also based in Berlin, so we met in her uh, Berlin uh, studio. And I'm very happy uh, to introduce to you a visual artist whose work bridges contemporary art, research and activism. Her work uh, deals with plants and nature in social and political context, often of violent nature. Her methodology, as we're going to find out today, involves working uh, not only with artists and within a closed artist studio, uh, but uh, together with specialists across various disciplines, uh, so botanists, soil researchers, hydrologists, and in general local people, to allow for a space of interaction and exchange of knowledge, which I very much appreciate and I also try to bring that forward in this podcast. Today we will mainly speak about her ongoing project that reveals an active change of landscape as an instrument of power used either to oppress people or to rewrite history. Distillats, the title of the project, received a special uh, prize of the ING Polish Art Foundation during the Warsaw Gallery Weekend uh, last year and it was uh, exhibited in one of my favorite uh, Warsaw-based galleries, Jednostka. So I was super happy to see it there and also here Carolina speak about uh, the process of uh, working on that piece and also the next steps she's gonna take uh, very soon. So before we enter into the conversation, I thought to read to you a small fragment that I found on Carolina's website that I think very well introduces her whole practice and idea about uh, nature and art. The environment, despite the way we are used to thinking about it, was not and is not a passive background for historical processes and events. Going beyond the anthropocentric perspective allows us to see nature as an actor, witness and co-participant of history, and landscape to be read as a living archive in which traces of past events are recorded. The violent practices that were applied to people in the 20th century not only had an impact on the environment, but also have their roots in the modern attitude to nature. Welcome, Carolina, to Kitchen Conversations. 
Thank you. Happy to uh, be uh, hosted in your studio. How are you feeling today? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you. <laughs> you are traveling usually a lot, right? But now you're in Berlin for a while. Um, for two more weeks. Okay. Then I'm going to Palestine to ah, yeah. produce the new project. Uh, you live between Berlin and other places or where are you based? Now I'm based in Berlin. Mm -hmm. And uh, since I moved to Berlin, I also started travel a lot so I was on a couple of different uh, art residencies and so I spent some time in Stuttgart on in Akademische Solitude then I was on three residencies in Ujazdowski Castle uh, Center of Contemporary Art in Warsaw and like all together it was one year uh, which I spent in Warsaw and and then I was also in Palestine and yeah in different places. So. We'll speak about that also yeah. uh, later. Um, yeah, I'm always curious when speaking to artists, like how did art start for you or like how did the um, profession of an artist appeal to you and what was your motivation to do this very difficult, I think, uh, yeah, lifestyle and uh, thing in life? It didn't come early, um, at the early stage for me, uh, because um, I I didn't have much of the connection with art and art world. So my, uh, my mom is a botanist, my dad is a soil researcher, and they always took me to the botanical gardens, not to, uh, for example, museums or galleries. Yeah. And um, and then I was uh, studying literature. I studied comparative literature, And I was at that time. I was pretty sure that I would stay at the university uh, as but, an academic. Yeah, mm -hmm. but uh, when uh, I actually received this offer, um, then I said no because I I knew at that very moment that I want to be a storyteller uh, myself, and I would like to make art projects. Nice. And then somehow the uh, nature or plants that were, I guess, shown to you as a kid kind of came back in your art practice and are still present. I tried very hard to escape that <laughs> for many years. And then because I and also I didn't know that this background was at all important to me uh, until I made this first, very first project called Weeds, which was about specific set of plants that grow in, in this abandoned uh, villages in southeastern part of Poland. And this um, this region is now famous of being like the widest part of Poland, but the biggest villages were located in this area. And after Second World War, almost 700,000 people were relocate, forcibly relocated from, from this region. And all these villages were burned down. It was very brutal action, actually. So the soldiers came to the village, they gave people two hours to pack, and they um, res forcibly resettled them. And they set these villages on fire just in purpose to, to show those villagers that they would never come back. Um, so there is like no visible evidences that uh, um, um, people used to live there, but the plants. And the plants are actually um, the only reminder of the human presence in this um, in this environment. Which uh, cities uh, are close to those areas? 
Just like um, geographically, so we can locate. It was actually area. a vast area. Uh, it was the Bieszczady Mountains and Beskide and Rostocza on the like no, northern part. Uh, so it was a big region. So from Rzeszów, Sanok, Krosno, and I did a big research then uh, about those plants that were introduced to this environment by humans. And they, they could survive 70 years without taking care of them. And then, because, you know, I, I was completely blind at the beginning. I couldn't, um, I, you know, everything was green. <laughs> and uh, But then after this research, I just realized that um, you not only can mark the space that the village was, like, you can not only tell that the village was there, but you can al also restore the whole topography of the village. And after the, this one-year research, I was able to like say that, okay, if you have this kind of plants, for example, ash trees or lime trees in the circle, it means that an Orthodox church was in the middle. If you find this plant, like periwinkle, for example, um, which is evergreen plant, and um, so it was a symbol of eternal life. That's why it was planted on graves. So maybe you are in, on the cemetery. And, you know, like mm. this kind of um, traces... How do you research that? Like who was helping you? I guess like you had to speak to people who are more uh, educated in plants and like land and so yeah, on. Yeah, of course. Of course. I First I started um, talking to the local people. But this is very interesting because um, those places, they have very specific um, affected aura and, uh, and they are like taboo spaces. So people really... They didn't want to talk to me about this and they really discouraged me to go to those places. So, of course, it encouraged me to really search Dig for... Deeper, yeah. Exactly. Um, but, uh, but so I started from the local people. Then I asked some botanists, ethnobotanists. Then I talked to my dad, who is a soil researcher, and he said, actually, that those plants, uh, because the human ingeration into the soil um, is so significant that those plants have a material that they need for life for the next 600 years. So, you know, it's uh, when we see, uh, when, we, when we perceive plants, we, we often think that they are very fragile, but at the same time, they are super persistent. And um, and um, and they are really a powerful tool and a powerful reminder. Yeah, I think we definitely underestimate nature. Uh, I feel like we kind of have this idea that we control nature, but I think at the end of the day, the nature definitely is way smarter and stronger than uh, the human species. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, definitely. Why do you find it important uh, to speak about history and different uh, social issues through plants? Um, it, it came to me like by the surprise, really, with this very first project. But this was the moment I just also developed the methodology. And, uh, and because I, I just realized that it can be also a tool to understand our surrounding and our place on Earth. And, mm -hmm. like, and also... Um, start perceiving the landscape as a, also a scenography and a, and a scene, like a crime scene, for example, that the, you know, that the traces are, are there, uh, but we need to just recognize them as traces. And I guess also like develop this practice of looking. Yeah. I feel we also 
often there is stuff which just comes by us and we don't even notice. Exactly. There is also uh, this um, blind blindness, right, that we all kind of have. And uh, and it's like a different way of, of looking, yeah, and perceiving uh, our surrounding, yeah. Just now a, a question came in mind, uh, since, of course, both of us live in Berlin. And Berlin has a lot of green, uh, yet, of course, it's a city. There's a lot of concrete blocks. And I wonder, like, how do you find connection to nature living here? Uh, and is it perhaps easier since now you also, like, work a lot with plants and nature? Do you find, do you have certain strategies of how to live closer to nature being in a big city surrounded by cars and all this uh, yeah pollution and so on i'm also very much a city person i can't like imagine myself living in the countryside on the countryside right. but i'm also um yeah, every week I try to, you know, go to some lakes and we have like so many lakes around Berlin. That's true, and yeah. So, and also I just realized that um, that is, this is also a way of working for me, that uh, that I work and like the, the best ideas and the best inspirations I got when I'm walking. Mm-hmm. So this is like a very intensive creative process for me, actually, mm-hmm. the walking through the forest and like, yeah, or being so at the lake. Walking still in nature or also around the city uh, works well for you. Um, creatively. Both, but better is when it's in nature. Yeah. Oh uh, yeah, nice. But then we are also happy to be in the city and then don't have so much green around you. That also keeps you kind of balanced. Then. Yeah, and I, I just need like all this, you know, cinema galleries and culture, yeah, yeah, cultural simulation. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. that's always the thing. Like nature is so beautiful and so peaceful, but that's uh, yeah somehow always missing. Especially I feel if you're a creative and you want to be like yeah inspired uh, with others' works and as well. Yeah, yeah, but also like the cities are our nature, right? We created this environment, and indeed, yeah, this is our habitat. Mm. Yeah. I don't know if we should be proud of it. Mm. Mm. Interesting to think about that. But I guess it's... I wonder how different it would be if everyone would decide. I mean, it's certain groups of people who kind of created it around their needs. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yes, I wanted to speak uh, now about your uh, project uh, Distillettes. It's your uh, recent project that got quite some exposure and uh, I really uh, was excited to speak about it uh, with you. Um, Yeah, at the beginning, I think it's always good if the artist themselves uh, tells a few sentences about it, what it is for you and how it started for you. So this is a project about um, landscape as an instrument of power. And um, and how is it transformed, uh, not according to the aesthetic needs, but political interests. And um, and like I'm very much interested in this contaminated landscapes and uh, how people are, are or powers are marking territories. And uh, in this particular project I'm not um, so much focused on ecocide and destruction of environment 
but I'm exploring this politics of planting and and this greenwashing policies and um, and actually um, plants that are or were used to camouflage sites of violence. I felt like the term uh, politics of planting. It really stuck with me, like the first time I read it. Is it actually a whole study that is being explored, or is it a term that you just uh, use for your own work? It sounds like it could be a whole, uh, you know, academic topic. This is a term I found in the one um, short introduction for the conference, uh, which was organized at Goldsmiths by um, Dr. Sheila Sheikh. No, there, there is like no a huge study about it. I just like that this term because it's um, it's exactly the the right definition of uh, yeah what's what was going on. What for was example, going yeah, on yeah. in Palestine and in Poland? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Tell us more about more like the practical parts. Like the project has two case studies, and from the case studies, or three, de- yeah, or three, yeah. uh, you developed uh, also uh, art work or arts thing. First, I did the big research about uh, how Nazis were using plants to um, in their you know, machine of conquer and extermination, especially how they were using plants in Poland to, for example, camouflage mass graves or concentration camps and death camps in Poland. And they really used the specific plants and they have a great, really great knowledge about plants. And uh, and they really wanted to create um, a green barrier, for example, around the camp so no one could see uh, what was happening there. And because, you know, Holocaust supposed to be the perfect crime without witnesses, without traces. So they really paid a great attention to camouflage everything and, and to erase all the traces. For example, after demolition of the death camps in Sobibor, in Bełszedz, in Treblinka, they planted pine trees and they picked pine trees because of a couple of reasons, because it's like the most common tree in Poland so you know it, it doesn't look like uh, cut Strange, and paste yeah, exactly. out of uh, kind of exactly. different story different place yeah and it's it is frost resistant it has no almost no soil requirements and it grows very very fast so it can conceal everything in a very short time and also planting pine trees was an important part of the Zionists' plan of transforming this uh, historical landscape of Palestine uh, to take away its indigenous character and to impose this Eastern European look so it looks native, uh, uh, like it looks more um, familiar to those uh, Jews coming, from right? or so to the newcomers, settling. exactly. Yeah. To to so it can encourage the Jewish uh, Jews from uh, Poland and neighboring countries to move there and settle there. And it was a mass, uh, really a, 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 a big action. Even like this, we can now today could call it a crowdfunding campaign because they organized the or organized the funding uh, and they were. Uh, organizing this big action, uh, uh, collecting money from Jews from the diaspora, to uh, and it has a slogan to make the desert bloom. 
this whole action uh, was also to emph um, emphasize this narrative of inhabiting a no man's land. So Palestine is supposed to be, you know, the land without people for the people without land. So they really had to erase the presence of Palestinians from this landscape. And as uh, many of your listeners may know, that the landscape of Palestine is a cultivated landscape. There are hills covered with terraces. So they really wanted to conceal all these terraces and they planted 250 million of pine trees in a very short time. Like, What times are we talking here about? It was in like from the 30s, 40s. And from the uh, 1948, after establishing the state of Israel and after Nakba and the mass displacement of Palestinians, they planted also this pine forest on top of erased Palestinian villages. They demolished all the, most of the buildings And then they planted pine trees for exactly the same reason, because they grow very fast. And they really wanted to be, Zionists really wanted to um, be perceived as uh, only victims, not the oppressors. So the pine trees supposed to like camouflage or the violence that was happening there. Quite striking, of course. It's hard to not to see the uh, yeah, dark irony of that one tree that was hiding the... Holocaust was then used by the Zionists to cover their own crimes. Yeah, exactly. But this process didn't end in the 40s. They are really continuing and using plants in a in, in a different ways to suppress Palestinians and to uproot Palestinians, to really cut their bond with the land. And so Palestinians, for example, are not allowed to pick herbs and they are really criminalized for that. And um, there is a film, I actually haven't seen it yet, but this is the film of Jumana Mana about the uh, herb pickers. Uh, I also work with uh, with the same lawyer um, who uh, actually uh, was trying to help people who are in prison because they had uh, been caught by with having a little bit of zatar with them. Uh, zatar is a thyme. It was an, uh, a law made by Ariel Sharon, who was at a very short time a minister of agriculture in Israel. And he created a list of protected plants. And it's also very vicious, you know, gesture because like what we need more than protecting plants, right? And this kind of policies. But it was actually the 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 reason for that was like strictly political and it was, you know, against Palestinians because they use Time in the cuisine, it's like super important uh, ingredient, yeah. ingredient um, of of the zatar, and uh, they use zatar for everything, like to everything, like adding to you know even popcorn when you go to this like hipster bar, but also the the bread, olive, and zatar is like the full meal, and they drink tea with sage, and and so picking of sage is also uh, banned. And uh, and it also criminalizes the the groups of you know um, Palestinians that they can be hardly criminalized because you know who is picking herbs, like elderly people who try to you know earn a little bit of money maybe on on the market. But they are um, you know they are indigenous people there. They know where to pick it, how much they can pick, so it grows you know. So it's safe and it can grow um, next year in the same place. So the herb picking now, it's it's an act of resistance in Palestine. And also they are uh, using um, eucalyptus right now. 
and this is my third case study. And I'm, yeah, I was waiting for it. <laughs> I'm coming back to to Palestine now also to work on this um, case uh, because they are using eucalyptus against Bedouins, and Bedouins um, they live uh, on a desert uh, um, and the Nakab Negev Desert. Uh, is like 75% of the whole Israel territorial, let's call it like that. So the Palestine occupied in 48, as would Palestinians say. And they don't fit in this vision of the modern country. So they are regularly displaced and they are um, forced to forcefully resettle to these three ghettos that they were created for Bedouins, but they are still coming back. And uh, and um, Jewish National Fund, they plant eucalyptus on the sides of the Bedouin villages, and they pick eucalyptus because it grows very very fast, and also it absorbs a lot of water. And Bedouins are shepherds, so they always have animals. They have camels, then they have goats, they have sheep, and um, so they depend on the water sources. And they always locate the villages where the water sources are because they need it for themselves, they need it for, mm-hmm. for animals. And eucalyptus, is an, it absorbs so much water, like many, many times more than any other plant species in this environment. So it makes the, the springs to dry out. And, and this is the method of like, you know, pushing them to go. Uh, so oh. when the Bedouins are coming back, they just re- try to remove all these eucalyptus trees. And then they are, you know, pictured by Israelis as barbarians who are destroying this uh, ecological efforts of the Jewish National Fund. But they actually are protecting this natural desert habitat because uh, also both pine and eucalyptus, they are not native species there. They are uh, invasive species because they don't have natural uh, enemies. Um, they grow very, very fast and they also eliminate other nat- native species. Oh, super interesting. What is your insight into this region? Uh, you were doing a residency there or how, how, how are you so often there and working there with the local people? Yeah, so I, um, so I went um, in 2019 for an art residency and like from the very beginning I started uh, this plant research because I came with this, my methodology from Weeds project but then also after, I was uh, right after making this research how Nazis were using plants. I came and I started like asking and, and investigated how um, Zionists were using plants in the colonial project. Did you know about it before coming or did you find it out there? I knew about pines, but I didn't know about eucalyptus and I didn't know about herbs, of course. Yeah, it, I can only imagine how exciting it must be to discover all these uh, new cases. I mean, exciting for your project and of course development of your whole methodology yeah. but but I also came back to Poland with this research and I started like I, I talked to my parents about it so I told them about the pine trees and they told me actually that that the pine trees are very acidic and they acidify the soil to this extent that it's not able to be cultivated anymore so, it's so not nothing fertile. else can grow there. So that's why it was also like the beginning of this uh, the distillate project because I start thinking, um, what if? So it's like a kind of a speculative project. Like what if Palestinians succeed in their fight 
thing of, of the right of, to return, right? So they so they easily could rebuild the whole infrastructure, cities, towns, villages, but they would not be able to cultivate the soil. And that, that's why I started like, thinking, is it possible to change the function of these trees, of these forests? Like, What to do with all these trees, exactly. how to use them. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Like, is it possible to, you know, to transform the function from like they were used to camouflage, maybe now they can serve those uh, oppressed communities. And uh, so I was thinking that maybe uh, making this um, essential oil is also a one way of one possible scenario is one possible way so so they can be used to by palestinians to him, heal themselves but also as a like exportable commodity so it can be sold and maybe this kind of the, the, it would be the way to to gain some profits i have not the the smell here the essential oil not the one you made but just another one from pine But I also, you know, didn't want to go there as a white savior and, uh, and of course, like, uh, told them, like, oh, yeah, you should, you should produce essential oil. Capitalizing exactly. <laughs> on there. <laughs> exactly. But I met the botanist there, Abed Alami, who already started in this 2019 um, producing uh, essential oils from many different plants. And he also told me last year that he planted on his own field uh, geranium uh, just to make the essential oil. But then the soldiers came and they they destroyed all the geranium he planted. So it's also like even the production of essential oil is an act of resistance. Uh, because also, uh, I didn't tell you that it's not only uh, sage or thyme that they're um, on this list of protected plants but any plants that has medicinal effect is listed as a protected plant and of course that can be picked by illegal israeli settlers but not palestinians yeah it's quite striking that something like also the whole idea of planting the first thought is something positive like you plant something exactly. right and then uh, you see how deeply dark it can get if it's in the hands of the one who is the colonizer and the settler but coming back to the essential oils so uh, yeah I, i find it so beautiful that you had this uh, wonderful in-depth research that deals with some very uh, yeah difficult uh, and uh, dark histories and present-day contemporary colonialism. Uh, but you still were doing a gesture to somehow resist. Uh, I found some somewhere a term micro-resistance uh, into yeah, thinking of possible ways of using uh, those plants and, as you said, uh, making essential oils. Uh, you were showing uh, those essential oils in an exhibition in Warsaw. Uh, can you tell a little bit how you were presenting the work mm -hmm. and how did people interact with the work and what was like the idea behind it? As you can tell now, my whole practice is very much research-based, but yeah, I don't yeah. really want to show it, uh, you know, like the research on the table. I really try to create the environment, as much immersive as possible installations. Usually they are very pleasant and nice to be with or in. 
and uh, and then it allows me to tell like all the stories about violence because people are more exposed and open to to hear that when they just are in feel the, good right exactly in this pleasant environment and so when people were entering uh, the gallery space they were saying like all the time they were saying oh what smells so nice and then they follow the smell and then they hear the story and uh, so it was an olfactory installation and uh, creating a kind of an inhalatorium so the smell was always present in the in this in the space and and there were some of course bottles with essential oils and hydrolates and so people can also like smell it from the bottle then more intensely yeah. Yeah. more directly and uh, were you telling the stories uh, through your voice vocally or could people read about it or? there was a publication so people could read it uh, but also during Warsaw Gallery Weekend I was always in a gallery so I was always like telling the story so I saw some recipes for different remedies you can use the essential oils for or more maybe what the pine can provide or what it can heal or affect. Can you share some of your discoveries? Yeah, so I, I uh, worked with um, Barbara Błażeca. She's a um, herbalist and, and plant healer. I can maybe use this term. Yeah, she came to me with like whole bibliography uh, with these piles of books and then we searched together um, uh, about like all these different, uh, sometimes very old uh, recipes of, and and uh, yeah. And actually I was very surprised that you can really use every piece of pine trees uh, for the healing purposes. Yeah, that was exciting to see. From bark to needles, like everything can be used. It's and, crazy. Yeah. It always surprised me how little we know or how I know about plants in general, but nature, how much actually knowledge uh, we lost. Yeah, exactly. Through, exactly. Yeah, contemporary medicine and Obviously, like capitalizing on everything. Uh, exactly. That's why I really wanted to make this a part of the project. So like incorporate this um, almost lost knowledge. And uh, and I really want... So I, I work with the local partners always in Poland. I make this distillation with uh, Paweł Piasecki, who is like a really a distillation guru in Poland, essential oil distillation. And I have worked with Abed Alami uh, in Palestine. But also I was thinking that I really would like to work with the local herbalists and local local uh, healers and uh, just to gain the, the local recipes. Maybe it's still yeah gonna continue yeah, right yeah. with uh, the new case studies and are you using uh, the pine essential oil yourself uh, since you started working on the project or is it just too much and you cannot smell it anymore? I don't use this one from Sobibur <laughs> because also, uh, you know, like to produce this um, essential oil, you need a lot of needles. So I, I had like 50 kilograms or even more needles and I produced only like four milli milliliters of essential oil. Like crazy. So it's like... So you have really little, so you so have, have to be careful. Yeah, so it's only like for <laughs> it's the... It's for art. Exactly, <laughs> this is for art. But I use uh, pine essential oil when I'm, yeah, when I'm uh, having a cold or, yeah. I, I do it, actually, I do, I use it in uh, in the inhalations, yeah. 
Interesting. Yeah, I was telling you that yesterday uh, when preparing for this conversation, I was like, I have to get more into essential oils. And actually I found one in my house, which I didn't use. I was like, okay, maybe that's a good motivation. <laughs> uh, well, we're getting slowly uh, to the end of our conversation. Is there anything you would like to share with us in terms of your future uh, projects or what you're working on, what is going to be important for you in the next months? Yeah, so I'm, I'm coming back to Palestine in two weeks to make my very first documentary movie. And it oh, will be like a work with film. Yeah, cool. so it's, it will be like a completely new medium for me, and uh, and I'm super excited because I thought that you know this olfactory installation it can be very powerful, very beautiful, and very immersive. But you have to be there, so it's like very hard to transmit the story. Mm-hmm. So that that's why I thought that maybe it will be good to make a documentary about this the process, the, also the 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 whole story behind it. So the camouflage and uh, made by planting and and then it can be shown as a film uh, on the in in a, in a cinemas and film festivals, but at the same time it can be uh, shown as a video installation, you know, next to the Just, olfactory installation yeah, yeah, yeah. in the galleries. Great, I think indeed. Uh, mm, I think film would be very good uh, to trace the whole story and uh, all these different uh, yeah, regions and histories. And I think it's definitely a good uh, further step. Super exciting. Also nice for for the listeners, so they have something to look forward to and kind of follow you and uh, yeah, follow the new parts of the works coming. Uh, yeah, last but not least, the last question is always about food. Uh, yeah, and food and plants, there is quite some connection. What is your favorite uh, food from home, whatever home is for you? And I think it's always nice to finish by speaking about taste and... Which is also very much related to smell, and right? Because Indeed, exactly, all the senses. Mm. Yeah, home, home food. Uh, yeah, so I think, I think they are um, pierogi, my mom's pierogi. So my mom's dumplings with blueberries. So nice, sweet ones. Yeah. And you eat them with like cream and uh, sugar? Yeah, although I don't eat much sugar and I shouldn't eat gluten anymore. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's problematic. <laughs> that's problematic, but I can't resist really. Like she, she makes like super soft dough. So it's... Oh, that's yeah. special to, uh, to achieve that. Exactly. Not so easy. You need years of practice. Yeah. And the boiling water. Yes, indeed, for the dough. Yeah. So funny that every time I speak to a Polish artist, uh, usually they say pierogi as really? their favorite dish. But also żurek, this is f- something very special. Yeah, like, and quite Easter, right? So we just had Easter, so... <laughs> Yeah, but um, but also it's sour, and the sour is not the sour taste is not so uh, not very often present in the in uh, in a cuisine. Other right? cuisines, yeah, yeah, that's true. So my mom also makes this. Um, how we can call it in English? Yeah, it's like it's the same what you add to the bread, like sourdough, the starter, I guess. Yeah. yeah. 
Zakfas. Zakfas, yeah. It's also called white barsht. Yeah, you could say that, yeah. I mean, now a lot of people know borscht because exactly. of uh, Ukraine, of course, uh, but it is a different barsht. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's definitely more sour. And my mom also baked apples and add the baked apples to that. Wow, so it's that's a nice, nice combination with this like slightly sweet apples and uh, and the sour soup. Do you eat it then with uh, also with egg? Yeah, sometimes when it comes with apples, then with uh, potatoes more than eggs. Mm, that's nice. So it's more like a vegetarian vegan option. Yeah, this is a vegan option. Yeah, it's amazing because yeah. I always look for alternatives. I'm more into vegetarian, vegan cuisine. And uh, yeah, the apple sounds good. I will try that. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Thank you so much, Carolina, for sharing your thoughts and your project. I enjoyed meeting you. Thank you so much. Thank you. This was it for today. Thank you for reaching till the end of this episode. And last but not least, I wanted to give you some tips of how to support this podcast if you liked what you heard. Uh, you can, of course, uh, rate it and follow it on various uh, streaming platforms. Uh, you can have a look and perhaps buy the Kitchen Conversations cookbook. That is a cookbook I uh, published last year with recipes uh, of artists who appeared on the podcast and all the money from the sales goes uh, to supporting uh, this platform, of course. And lastly, you can become a patron of this podcast and support Kitchen Conversations with a monthly amount of your choice. And in return, you will receive some uh, goodies from me and a lot of love and good energy. In the meantime, take good care and we hear each other soon.